Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, 12 Monkeys. In the year 2035, I saw Bruce Willis's butt. Yeah? Like, like, am I supposed to be like, <laughs> I saw yours yesterday? Although we've been to Onsen, so I've seen it anyway. But, uh, you know, for yesterday's... Yeah. For yesterday's podcast, I, you know, he didn't lock his apartment. So I went in right as he was scurrying into the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> for the post gym shower or whatever. So I just that called him true. out on it. Yeah, that is true. But again, you know, we do two of these sometimes and stop by the Japanese hot spring. So it's all fun and games, right? Yeah. Yeah. We've seen everything before. Okay. <laughs> this is, uh, oh, I, I was introducing myself, I guess. This is Matt. This is Luke. Welcome to the early morning sci-fi sanctuary where we're talking about 12 monkeys, unless you are a guest today, in which case it is the, the late evening. <laughs> Luke, you want to run that one? Uh, yeah. So we're joined by guests who I first heard on the QAnon Anonymous podcast. But don't worry, that's not a podcast for people who believe that stuff. <laughs> Thank the, you for saying that. <laughs> that's the reaction I always get when I tell people I listen to it. It's like, no, no, it's not that. I'm how, how bad do you I think like it, it is working for it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, but also, more recently, the host of Vaccine, the human story. Again, it's not like that. But <laughs> a very, very good podcast. So we're joined today by Dr. Annie Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is uh, going to be an interesting episode, I think, because for you guys, it's really early morning and you've just got up. And for me, it's quite late and I've had like half a bottle of wine. So oh, we may be on very different tracks on this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdly, uh, we compared to yesterday's podcast, I'll probably be uh, more coherent because uh, I, I have had a, I, I have a week's worth of bags of medicine for better or for worse. And yesterday I was like totally spacing out somewhere and making what zero sense or two percent sense what was my sensimeter yeah it, it was it was up and down you you would always make the start of a point and you just didn't finish any of them <laughs> it's like tom well, cruise I mean, this is the perfect movie for that actually because it felt like the whole thing is about how people seem like they don't make sense and they seem crazy but actually they're they're perfectly lucid you just don't have all of the information hmm yeah, it did a really good job of making me feel frustrated for the characters. Not I will, like being able to explain things. I, I, I will bring the 6 a.m. And, and say, did we did we say the movie yet? Which yeah, is, yeah, yeah, he said it is 12 okay. monkeys. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, there's a, a line between like being lucid, though, and being socially functional. 
which, um, <laughs> I mean, if I'm not socially functional, but I'm lucid, it's still kind of crazy. So you know, I'm, I'm right, but I'm crazy. Um, as for me, I think I saw this movie opening night. I, I would have been in ooh, somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in high school when it came out. And this would have been the point where I think my friends and I would just you know bop on over to the theater every Friday and possibly Saturday night just to see the new releases. I saw many doll movies. This was not one of them. Uh, you know, I went out on release day to get the VHS and, and watch the crap out of it. And but I think i haven't seen it for the past 15 to 20 years so it's kind of a uh, fun to get back into it and uh luke you said you think this was your first time well i remember it no existing and coming out and but so as a kid if it was like schwarzenegger of course i watched it because i knew it was action but bruce willis could go either way he did real films as well like he acted so <laughs> i remember it coming out and i remember it being on like my uncle watched it or my parents would have watched it. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this is just a, a boring film for people who want to see people talking and not really paying attention. And I felt like I must have watched it in the intervening years. But then when I watched it last night, I was like, no, I don't think I've seen this film before. Yeah. I, I had a similar experience. I watched it um, as a kid when I was poorly and my dad got it for me like as a bit of a treat just to be like oh you know I've got you some movies to watch while you're feeling sick um and I just remember being like this is just the worst trash I've ever seen like <laughs> this is really tedious uh, it's really like weird looking I don't get it I feel ill already and then you know there's all of this kind of sort of what I would like to learn is kind of a sort of Gilliam grotesquerie kind of to the aesthetic and yeah I know I, I really didn't like it and then I remember trying to watch it again as a teenager and kind of just being like you know what it's just not for me and then I watched it tonight and I don't know something clicked for me I was just like this is fantastic I I finally get it I finally become my father and I understand why he thought it was such a good movie because it just all clicked together this time I thought it was great yeah I was singing watching us when you're sick is, is not cool it's like uh first time i saw castaway was the night before a transatlantic flight so you know, some, <laughs> sometimes timing is everything <laughs> yeah i do feel like the movies that you watch when you're sick do like get this like very specific feeling for you as well there's some movies that i like even and even now i can't come back to without feeling really ill the wolf of wall street is one of those for me i watched it when i was had really heavy flu and every time I try and watch it now, I, I, it starts to make me feel a bit feverish. I don't really yeah, know how to explain it. but Yeah, for me, when, when I'm sick, it's like people are like, oh, well, you got time to sit around and yeah, watch the films you like, listen to the music you like. I'm like, mm, yeah, but I'm not going to like it anymore if I do that. Yeah. So <laughs> I tend to just stare at the wall a lot when I'm sick, which isn't very often, fortunately. But, uh, but let, let's see, a few days ago, I took an actual sick day. And what, what did I do? edited podcast because uh that's i mean let's face it it's not that fun anyway <laughs> um, yeah i didn't i play a lot of musical instruments i didn't even do that till like later in the evening for like 15 minutes so i avoided that i think purposefully as well yeah you still you don't want to associate you know things you like uh when you're 
feeling crummy. I watched a really terrible episode of Star Trek, so but it's one I I'll, I won't watch again. So <laughs> yeah, I have sort of learned that's the trick actually. To when you're sick, you just like have to find something that you'll never ever watch again, and just sort of be like some some terrible show on Netflix or something, and just be like, all right, this is you're getting my you're getting my time now. I remember binging all of the Defenders when I was feeling sick. Yeah, yeah, it's something it's just, like that. Yeah. <laughs> just like, I have no attachment to this. I'm never going to want to watch this again. Let's go. As a kid, I would just watch whatever was on TV, which means I would end up watching all of the like preschool television, like Teletubbies. And... But I'm talking <laughs> about when I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then you would like move to like middle-aged people or like old people TV as the day went on. It would all be sort of talk shows and things like yeah, that. Yeah, Bargain Hunt and yeah. Antiques Roach. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Kyle, if you were lucky. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was weird Um, in, in the waiting room a few days ago. Um, They had the Japanese kid show, which I just hadn't seen for like eight to ten years. So that was weird because it's Japanese kids TV, right? So, and I have this weird nostalgia for it. Uh, having having watched it when my daughter was young, she's way too old for that show now. But uh, the the last thing she wanted to watch was Alien. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we're, I'm not doing a summary for uh, Alien today. I guess I'm going to go for Twelve Monkeys. Am I? I guess it's not an inappropriate film to spend uh, ten minutes talking about feeling sick. So <laughs> no, that's that's why I kept riffing on that because it seemed like a winner so uh what is it about let's get into that James Cole is a prisoner living underground in a future where the Earth's surface has become uninhabitable due to a deadly virus. In exchange for a pardon, Cole is sent back in time to collect information that can cure the virus, though he will not be able to stop the cataclysm. On his first journey, he ends up in 1990, six years before the plague. Unable to properly navigate the past, he ends up in a mental institution where he meets Jeffrey Goines, son of a biotech czar whose company is in possession of a potential deadly virus. Cole is quickly brought back to his present, having failed, and then is properly sent back into 1996 with a brief jaunt to World War I. In 1996, he kidnaps Dr. Catherine Riley, who was his doctor in the 1990 mental institution. The two go looking for information about Goins' eco-terrorist organization, the Army of the Twelve Monkeys, Riley coming against her will. Having gained some information, Cole returns to the future, which he now believes is his own delusion, while Riley becomes convinced that Cole was actually from the future. Cole becomes obsessed with returning to the past to get more information, and the scientists do so because he is qualified. He finds Riley again shortly before the plague is unleashed, convinced that he is crazy while Riley is trying to help him solve the 12 monkeys dilemma. 
As it turns out, the 12 monkeys truly are nuts, with their plan simply being to unleash all the animals from the Philadelphia Zoo. The real villain all along was the dad from Contact, who, un- <laughs> who lets loose the virus in the Philadelphia airport, with Cole and Riley chasing him, Cole being shot by the police after running through security. Interestingly enough, his young self is also at the airport watching himself die. Okay, two thirds of that was written, and the last third was uh, riffed because it was it was midnight last night. It's like I could get proper sleep where I could write the synopsis now, and I <laughs> I chose proper sleep. Uh, and you couldn't tell at all. Okay, I, I could tell at the end, but <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually want to talk about Brad Pitt first. Like I said, I was in high school when this movie came out, and all the guys hated Brad Pitt because he was the yeah, pretty he boy. was in his hunk era. Right. Legends of the Fall interview with a vampire, you know, like you're trying to, to get a date for the homecoming and everyone's got a Brad Pitt poster in their locker. It also helped that my dad, for some reason, had some like irrational hatred towards Legends of the Fall. So, um, yeah, I, w- I just put him in the, the dumpster where I would. Um, <laughs> who, who would go in there now? I, I haven't even watched him that much, but I guess he's yeah, occupied then what would now be like the Zach Efron space of a few years ago. I don't even know who it would be now. <laughs> I think there was a period where guys in my generation hated Robert Pattinson. Mm, which yeah. he's, he's won them around by just being a hilarious guy. I, I was going to say, and you look very foolish for that now, don't you? I said Not guys, if you watch Twilight. The, the Twilighters <laughs> were right once again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. I watched and read all the twilights the, the, the twihards was that what they were called the, maybe uh, maybe they didn't have like special stand names back then maybe well, it, it, you had to be because within the twilight fans you then had to be team edward or jacob so mm. yeah i dodged that bullet um my wife's american friend gave her the first twilight book because she loved it I, I think my wife read half of it hated it so we just we didn't delve any deeper <laughs> And I wasn't going there myself, although I may get dragged in by this podcast at some point. So, <laughs> but that'll be yeah. fun in its own right. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I, the point is having Brad Pitt like go with such an insane, you know, character in this movie after doing all the pretty boy stuff, you know, we're in the theater like, whoa, this is, this is great. And um, watching it last time, I'm still like, how does he do that with his eye? I mean, it's almost like, now you'd be like, oh, they digitally screwed up his eye. But in 1995, no, that that it's he's a doing contact something. lens. There we go. Thank you. It looks quite insane. So it does. Well. It does look insane. But no, he he he's fantastic. He's he's so watchable in it. And yeah, it's one of those things that I've always felt for Brad Pitt as he's got older. You sort of get to see. I sometimes think it can be a bit of a blessing when you're an actor getting a bit older. Well, this is if you're a man, obviously. 
um and you you know you you don't fit the like pretty boy hero roles quite anymore and you suddenly you almost get to break out of them a bit and have a bit of fun and I really feel that's sort of what I felt Brad Pitt's late career has been he sort of gets to play more fun adventurous roles where he can be a bit funny and actually yeah watching this is kind of a sign that it wasn't that he just like you know got better at them he's as he got older he was always good at playing you know uh yeah fun fun characters uh yeah uh what do you call them not side characters but like a character yeah, he always yeah. had the ability to be a character actor yeah he was just but a his, bit too handsome but his beautiful <laughs> face <laughs> just didn't just didn't let him do enough of it <laughs> yeah i see I feel like I've actually missed most of Brad Pitt's films. So all I can really think of is Troy. And I remember him. He's perfect in that because he looks like a Greek god. Mm. (laughs) Since then, I've just seen the more recent stuff, you know, like Burn After Reading and things where he's actually a really good actor. Uh, Yeah. yeah, In peak hunk era, Brad Pitt, I'm thinking. Boys and Selma and Louise. Uh, Yeah, Troy. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, I remember, uh, remember that. that. Yeah. <laughs> I think I saw it once and I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> yeah, well, the legend is that's where he, he meets Angelina Jolie and, and falls in love. And it's if that's true, then it's like shocking because they have absolutely no chemistry in that movie whatsoever. <laughs> My main also- memory of that movie is that it has the like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ending, but then everyone lives. <laughs> yeah. Um, what if we took all of the gravitas out of that famous, yeah. <laughs> famous thematic ending? Probably, probably could make an interesting side trip. <laughs> um, this is yeah, pretty smack and uh, peak Willis, but not quite. I guess like super high budget Willis films. Because after this, it goes straight into Armageddon and um, and The Fifth Element, which do have massive budgets. This one, not... I mean, Terry Gilliam never gets a big budget for whatever reason. Um, probably because his films are nuts. <laughs> Fantastic, but nuts. <laughs> uh, that could have something to do with it. But um, yeah, this is definitely a, a switch for Willis as well, because I think this is where he stopped completely being like the you know diehard guy or mm. moonlighting guy if you're like really into television. <laughs> Again, he's playing a little. This does seem like the Bruce Willis type now, but at the time he was a little more of a, you know, like John McClane complains to himself and things, but he he doesn't necessarily just go. He doesn't become a whack yeah, job. Yeah, but the the character of Cole is, yeah, the character of Cole is is very different. You think because he's so vulnerable for for so much of the film. You know, his kind of Bruce Willis ability, I suppose, is that he can he can carry himself. He can. Uh, you know he can they know he can fight so early on when he's brought into the police station they'd say he took out he took down one police officer just with his bare hands so that's kind of Bruce Willis-esque but he's also just like so adrift in the future and it's one of the features I really like about this film is that it's still quite rare that time travel isn't sort of uh, configured as easy it's not easy on the body and it's like not easy on the mind and the whole reason they send you know prisoners from this colony out there are because they're expendable essentially and they say early on you know very few of them make it we need strong-willed 
we need, we need strong-willed ones um and uh, so you can kind of see that he's almost sort of from the very beginning kind of fracturing and drooling and he's kind of completely hopeless which is not really the Bruce Willis character at the time I think it wasn't but at the same time I think everyone had said what separated Bruce Willis from the action stars before him was that he did have that slightly more human element like even in something like a Die Hard he is struggling a lot more than the Stallones mm. and the Schwarzeneggers and the mm. Van Dams had the decade before. But yeah, this, this is a really smart choice, I think, on his part to do a film like this that shows such a different side of him and maybe would have helped show that, like, actually this guy's got legs beyond just doing a few more Die Hard sequels. Mm. One thing about the James Cole character. So I think the audience at this point, at any, well, even still, you identify with Bruce Willis. James Cole is pretty unsympathetic. I mean, it's said he is like a violent criminal from the start, right? And um, some of the things he does is just kind of, you know, pretty whack when he goes to the past, again, because his mind is fracturing. But the character is very difficult to identify with or sort of be the um, audience Sorry, surrogate. Guys, just bear with me one second. My cat has wandered into the room and is jingling, so I'm just going to take his collar off. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear a cat, but uh, I heard yeah, a yeah. brief jingle, and I think I guessed it was a cat. But you know, I don't complain yeah. about cat sounds. Yeah, yeah. I guess. Well, you know, there's trains and stuff outside, so you never know when there'll be a, a jingle or something. But um, yeah, f- finishing my point, un- unlike our other recording, <laughs> uh, James Cole is not easy to identify with in pr- pretty much every way. I like they they never actually tell us what he's in prison for. They say it's violent. I mean, they, yeah. you know, that who knows what that means in you know, this we, weird we did, Gilliam dystopia. But when we see him being violent in the film, it's all—it's basically all self-defense. So, I—I w- I was almost worried the film was going to finally show us what he'd done, and it would have been him like, oh, he refused to follow the orders of the quarantine. He wanted to be with women he loved or whatever, and I was going to be like oh, wow, this is a film about, like, an anti-vax hero. But actually, it it really doesn't show us anything about his life between seeing these traumatic incidents as a kid and we meet him in prison. We have no idea what he did or why he's there. Yeah, I mean, it never really bothered me because you you don't particularly get the sense that it's a a fantastic society in which he's been imprisoned in, right? It Mm. certainly feels very dystopian, very authoritarian, very few resources. So the kind of the kind of fact he was a convict and even for a, a violent crime to me, I think, yeah, probably good. They le- left it ambiguous because it could go either way. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he is kind of was a real scumbag before all of this started and all of this kind of makes a redemptive arc for him, essentially. Or maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe he was just, you know, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time in this kind of quite terrible world that the future is. Well, considering what the film, I think, is trying to say about how mental health patients are treated, I I could see that it is meant to make us think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't just assume everyone who's in the prison system is a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But in the end, I think um, like when it's when it's uh, insinuated that he's just like done something horrible with uh, Dr. Riley, 
you know, the audience could probably accept that James Cole could have done that, but you know, Bruce Willis, no way. So there is that kind of weird, like you, you last night when I was talking to you, you were actually right at that point of the film, right, Luke? Yeah, yeah, because I'd watched part of it on my lunch and was going to finish it in the evening, and it had just cut away, and I'm like, what, what just happened? I can't, you can't just do that. I can't spend the next 10 minutes not knowing if my hero in this movie is like a sexual predator. So you spent 12 hours instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Moving down the list, uh, man, I didn't even realize that Christopher Plummer was our Southern madman. It just didn't like strike. But now I'm like, oh, yeah, of course he was. Yeah. Hey, I mean, coming coming from the deep south, it it was not a completely authentic accent, but it was an awesome accent. You know, (laughs) he was sort of, of, come on, doing the doing the foghorn leghorn thing, which was, uh, you know, always, always fun. I guess he was very, yeah, foghorn leghorn. I mean, very cartoony role and they while they're watching the marks bears on tv that gilliam was one of the pythons so it makes sense <laughs> yeah the, the the little guest role that i really loved was um frank gorshin as her boss bit of the riddler in there yeah that also you know i just watched the twilight zones he was in and even then i didn't i guess it's 30 years later so you can be forgiven for not right uh, I'm just saying, yeah, because I'm looking at the cast list here, right? <laughs> oh no, yeah, yeah, no, he, I, would, I, I knew who he was right away, and I was, I actually just assumed he was going to be a bigger role and be like our main villain, because I'm so used to that actor. But he, he, he was actually meant to be playing quite a sensible character, but he was still just really hamming it up as this weirdo. So that was great. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I've been joined by my cat. You can see him on the... Oh, that is quite all right. That's fine. <laughs> if people are on YouTube, they may, you know, people like cat videos, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe more than four people will watch this one. <laughs> um, so We haven't really spoken about... Um... Madeline Stowe, Dr. Yep. Riley. Yeah, she... Again, when you're talking about... I, I think all of us were like, ah, what about Madeline when uh, you're mentioning how... Someone like Brad Pitt ages out well because <laughs> uh, I'm I'm bringing up her filmography and someone I feel like I haven't seen much. Wow, her last acting credit actually is 2003, so she's she completely quit. Focused on motherhood. I never thought I'm retiring, but I didn't feel that thing revving in me. So I guess she just kind of uh, got out of the got out of the game more or less. Uh, looks like she's done a little bit of TV recently, appearing. Having a regular on one, showing up in the 12 Monkeys TV show, which I actually know nothing about. And so she's doing some TV. Okay. She, she's out there, but I have not seen her recently. And that seems legit. Yeah. Even looking at her actual filmography when she was active, I don't really think I've seen anything she was in besides this. Last of the Mohicans was a pretty big hit back in the day. I was going to say, was I think she, the last of the Mohicans is the only thing I've seen her run as well. Oh, yeah. And the general's daughter as well. I've, I think bought a DVD off and never watched. <laughs> but that's well for her because based on two films, I'm like, oh yeah, she was one of the, the big actresses in the 90s. I'm like, oh, that's based on two films because I haven't seen any of these other ones. So, <laughs> Yeah, she was very good in this. Um, I really, because obviously with Cole, we see him, he's completely disoriented, confused. You don't know if he's crazy or not right from the start of the film. 
Whereas we get to see her slowly break down as she realizes all of this stuff is true. Um, so at the start yeah. of the film, she seems like quite a cold character. But by the end, she was our second lead, essentially. The one yes. short... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's a really compelling switch, right? Where he has almost just completely bought into the present day narrative of him being um, crazy and this all being illusion, saying like, I'm, I'm cognitively divergent just at the very moment where she's realized that he is in fact from the future uh, and everything he's saying is true. So you almost get to kind of see them switch round where something he's trying to convince her that it's not real and she's trying to convince him it is. I thought that was a really, a really charming narrative switch. It wasn't simply, you know, her sort of saying, oh, I realized you were right all along. It was actually just a complete flip of the two roles. I liked that a lot. I remember I when he's like... in the car and he first predicts, oh, the little boy's okay, it's going to be. you In your head, you think, oh, okay, well, that's the moment where it's all just going to figure itself out. But then when we finally get the scene where she knows it's true and he doesn't, he's actually trying to explain it away and telling her, no, I probably, we both saw it in the same TV show. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really like that switch in the film, but then they have it go romantic right at the very end where it probably doesn't need to. And then they use the shorthand of a scene from Vertigo to kind of push it along as opposed to things that happen in the film. It's like you get the Vertigo scene, which, you know, which is a great mysterious scene. And then suddenly they're like, they like got, you know, their, their soulmates or something, which is a little... Like if, if I were to criticize something about the, the script or whatever, you know, using a iconic scene from another film to push your narrative seems a little bit lame. Yeah, well, I think I agree, but it's very restrained. Like, I'm not even sure they kiss on camera. It's like an implied kiss from his hands on her back. Uh, a it's little very... later, they do very briefly kiss at the airport. But oh, yes, yes, they do. You're right. But yeah, it was it was kind of sudden. But then. The film had already earlier on basically told us that she has Stockholm syndrome. So, and he's like this first woman he's, she's the first woman he's seen in like 20 years. So, <laughs> it's not unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> just get out of prison after 20 years, see your new psychiatrist, and you're just like, you're my wife now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like he's stepbrothers. He's not in a position to have a stable relationship at this point, you know, even if he's technically, I mean, he, again, he is pretty nuts, you know, he's just, he's, he's also right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that was the, that was the facet of the film I found so uh, wonderful. Cause I think it's one of those things where I often feel like lots of movies will do a thing where it's like, Oh, are they crazy or are they right? And kind of one thing I liked about this movie is it kept on throwing in your face like, oh, no, all of these kind of down and outs, all of these people on the street corner shouting about Jesus and things like that. And the people in the mental institution, they are crazy and they're also right, Do you know, um, which, you know, they're kind of and just by the way the the scenes are set up, the way you're kind of constantly first told that, you know, this is all immediately pre-apocalypse and then the way that the all of the buildings are just shown to be in this constant decay I thought it was just like this very cool motif essentially where it's just like yeah it is the end of the world and 
the only sane response actually is to go crazy, is to go mad. Do you know? Um, I don't know. I thought it was really gothic, really interesting. And it was just, yeah, this kind of, this whole understanding of this sort of, yeah, underworld essentially um, of madness. I thought it was just so compelling. I loved it. I was actually surprised the film didn't lean more into we as the audience don't know if he's right or not. Mm. I was half, I was expecting it to be more of a, a sort of K-Pax deal, but mm. we are shown very explicitly future scenes and him traveling back in time and him traveling to World War One. I. I think that at no point is the audience supposed to wonder mm. if he's correct or not. Um, yeah, well, like my favorite films are the yeah. Terminator movies. And I was like, oh, so this is what would have happened if Reese hadn't escaped from the police station. Like, yeah. <laughs> they just kept on believing he was crazy. Yeah. Well, they get that narrative with uh, Sarah Connor in the second one, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Where she is in there. So um, I, I do wonder if maybe they were, again, Gilliam may have been avoiding that particular streak because I think the film he made before this, it might have been two films before, was The Fisher King, where it, a depressing Robin Williams again, where it is extremely ambiguous you know what's going on okay so he might have just from a you know creator's point of view been like i don't want to like repeat myself too hard Mm. and and there's so much to his style you know you put this in brazil next to each other and it's you could almost like swap scenes back and forth you know just because his design aesthetic is so um well individualized i guess yeah they're your words better than mine. <laughs> yeah, but, like you said, Annie, I think it is. I prefer this angle of there's not the dichotomy between right and crazy. Mm. And I like that it doesn't make it just like as soon as she accepts him, suddenly he's fine and normal. Yeah. Like he still had a terrible traumatic life and he still had his mind messed up by all the drugs they put him on. So he's not suddenly yeah. going to be completely coherent just because. Uh- everyone believes him yeah and uh, and the way that um the, the the scene that that always sticks out to me and, and has even since i was younger is where the the guy they show a, a you know a sort of um montage of just to show you where you are setting the scene um and then in one shot there's a guy who's a street preacher who stood up and clearly really disheveled and is speaking you know the end of days and things like that and the second shot that you see that guy in, Bruce Willis is walking past him in a, in a hurry, and um, he the the street preacher stares at him, and then just suddenly goes, "You're one of us." Um, and I just thought that I, it stuck with me even in the, for the first time I watched it because it has such a I feel like compelling kind of idea of this underclass of people essentially um, having been discarded from the future you know in the past you know they the process of time travel is so traumatic that it it drives most people mad which is is something that they they imply very heavily early on in the the first scene and it simply kind of makes you reassess essentially all of that um all of that kind of backdrop essentially of kind of urban life um both in the movie and i think out of it that these people have just been, yeah, discarded by this this terrible regime. Um, they've been driven mad by their experiences, and now they're kind of on the streets. And there's another character who's a bit more prominent, who, um, yeah, 
uh, appears first and just first talking sort of disembodiedly to Bruce Willis and then as an actual down and out just under a bridge and he says to him you know the way they track you is through your teeth and they can't do that to me anymore and sort of bears his teeth at him and he's taken all of them out um, and again yeah it's just this yeah this kind of very just sort of compelling I think theme essentially that um, yeah there isn't there isn't a dichotomy as you say um, I, I think it's it's so fascinating and I've rarely seen it done that well in many science fiction movies or fantasy or whatever yeah my note for the street preacher was just um I wrote in a race it was just hey this preacher seems like he's straight out Monty Python wait a minute that's (laughs) (laughs) well even Brad Pitt's character who is you know the villain yeah he's obviously he's got his quirks and he's crazy but you know, he's just an animal rights activist, which isn't necessarily the wrong side of history to be on. So, and then it turns out he didn't even release the virus. He just wanted to let the animals out of the zoo and put his dad in a cage. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a fantastic reveal. Um, yeah, to to everyone here who hasn't seen Twelve Monkeys, to all of your audience, I apologize, <laughs> but I'm just going to barrel right in with the spoiler. It's fine. Reveal I, mean, I, just, I just read them the whole plot. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Um, but it was a fantastic reveal that, uh, yeah, that the, the 12 Monkeys uh, animal rights activist group had nothing to do with it. And what they'd written for, you know, uh, we did it was, yeah, just this kind of very juvenile prank of releasing all the zoo animals. Um, this tigers w- probably took somebody out. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I apologize killed. to all of the, the people in the fictional 12 monkeys universe who lost their lives on that day to the to the zoo, the, the 12 monkeys terrorist act of releasing the releasing if the, if the listeners and viewers at home have been affected by tiger attacks then please do it on screen <laughs> <laughs> right hey we did it we we did it five people ate it right so maybe not five billion but uh yeah. five five billion you know when 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 do lives start counting man <laughs> well did it start and say it's the other way around one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic that's if you're stalin well, that's how it feels playing pikmin <laughs> right right Luke, one thing, because we think of 12 Monkeys as the virus movie, but we 
we've been talking about mental health most of the time. And this really <laughs> does seem to fall pretty nicely into the mental health bin a little like the virus thing is kind of like window dressing almost. Well, yeah, see I- the virus. Yeah, it, it's the the it's like the plot point. But you actually you, <laughs> you never you never see anyone sick with it. Um, so it's not really a virus movie at all, even though. Yeah, I think because it has that the logo of this movie, the poster of the movie had the um. Do you know what I mean? Oh, the, bio the, the, bio, the biohazard symbol on it. Uh, so I think I always think of it as a virus movie, but you 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 bang on. It's not actually. I think it's like the virus could have been replaced with a nuclear war, but I guess mm. they wanted to differentiate themselves from a lot of time travel post-apocalypse movies and mm. have a slightly different apocalypse. In fact, the film makes more of a point of the animals have replaced us is what the future event is. The virus is just mm. the means for that to happen. Yeah, it can be a Planet of the Apes situation. Yeah. You know, I was going to say, I, I tend to confuse the end of this movie with the end of the, uh, the Planet, is it, which is Dawn is the first, Rise, I don't remember. but right, Yeah, it, the names would make more sense if it went Dawn, Rise, but actually it goes Rise, Dawn. Okay, that's cool. I, I'm not being <laughs> flippant. I do like that movie. I just yeah, yeah, yeah. completely confusing the titles is all. But uh, I, I think this is the first time where in a virus really was like the, um, you know, the linchpin of the situation because it was just a couple years after this outbreak was. Well, I mean, there's Andromeda strain 20 years earlier, but that's kind of a different thing. Mm. Um, after well, we get like outbreak. Uh, there was there was some other twin movie to that at the time, it's you know. I think the problem is just a virus isn't as exciting on screen as stuff exploding or monsters attacking or, I mean, it could be a virus, but even something like zombies, there's something to look at. Whereas mm, purely just mm. it's a virus. Well, like the guy says, it's invisible. Yeah. So it's not as if you're making like a, an action movie or a spectacle movie, well, there's a bit less to see. Mm. Although you didn't mention in your, um, your synopsis, Matt, when he gets on the plane with the virus, uh, the passenger next to him is one of the scientists from the future. Right, right. So yeah. I guess she took quite a, quite a, I mean, obviously that was the the big moment because uh, her going back and the scientists clearly don't want to be the ones doing it. So, but I mean, they, she they says did... something like I'm in, I'm in insurance as well. Yeah. Yeah. So they did at least get their sample in the end because prior to that, I was like, wow, what an incredibly bleak ending. Yeah, he's failed to stop yeah. the guy. He's failed his mission. He's just he gets shot, shot by so. yeah, fucking airport security. <laughs> I don't know what they call them in America. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I put you know, like when he makes his phone call, I'm like, okay, he's actually doing his job. So and, yeah, and that, that was he didn't have to, as he said, but that was the thing that actually uh, got everything underway because that's where they figure out you know who actually did it and can now focus on him. And um, there is a fatalist aspect. Um, you know, going against Luke going against your tattoo with yeah. no fate. Um, recently, I think you were talking to Mark, I can't remember what the podcast, and he was complaining about Nolan films like Tenet and Interstellar having basically the past, the future's written because of the time travel element. And this film is that taken to an absolute extreme. Like this kid saw his own death and has spent his whole life building up to the moment where he lives it again. Like they, they say constantly, like, we can't stop the virus. It's just about mm. getting the information to make a cure in the future. The film is extremely fatalist. 
So what are they doing to time? I, I guess time is like a, um, not a basketball, but the one you'd have in the kindergartens. They're a little more squishy, so you can kind of push on it here and there, but you can't really change it. Yeah, I think their angle is that like they can change things in the past because everyone's going to die anyway, but they can't change their own future. But it, I think it, yeah, because yeah, obviously this is one point where. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's funny given what Bruce Willis would go on to do, but he says something like, "He he kills somebody because he's attacking the the doctor," um, and she is obviously you know shocked that he's just murdered this man, and then he says something like, "All I see are dead people anyway," or something like that, meaning mm. they're all about to die from the virus. But given that he then goes on to do the Sixth Sense, it's a bit of a like, ha. <laughs> kind of line, yeah. <laughs> now, Br- Bruce sees dead people is one of my notes here, <laughs> and then yeah, quite a brutal uh, ass kicking there too. So, <laughs> yeah, throughout the film, we can see that he had already seen his own death. So mm. all of the time travel has, I guess, already happened in this this scenario. It's Terminator One. It's not Terminator Two. But I think it's kind of lost with the whole course correction thing. Again, you can modify, you can have new experiences, but you can't actually change anything. Well, see, I don't, I don't think they were even modifying. I think it was all the loop had already happened in this version. Yeah, it was all just information gathering, which yeah. I don't know. Um, now we can get into Bill and Ted things where at the end they're like, well, as long as we do this later, it'll, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it'll fit in now. So later we'll do this. And all, all of that. Um, it was interesting with people getting launched back and with that in mind, getting launched in completely inappropriate times. The one guy's like, I ended up in like 1888. Bruce ends up, you know, six years early and then in World War One to get shot. Mm-hmm. So uh, which, of course, turns out to be the proof, because at first, it's like, why is it? Th- I mean, it's fun. It's kind of weird. But wow, that's that's intense. And that these future scientists who admittedly don't have resources and seem perfectly nuts on their own are, you know, obviously making some notable mistakes. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, we got you down target this time. There are some moments Um, where the film is just too Terry Gilliam for its own good. (laughs) Yeah, I I I loved that. (laughs) It meant to be like, okay, this stuff is definitely real. So why are all the scientists standing around his bed singing songs? (laughs) Trying to be nice. It yeah. really was like the most Terry Gilliam-esque time travel, I think, where it's just like, yes, we have this technology. Uh, it's run by grotesque madmen, and they really don't get it right most of the time. And it's just kind of really, you know, a snowball's chance in hell that you will get where you're meant to be, at the place you're meant to be. Um and also, yeah, and also it drives you mad. It, you, it will probably make you lose your mind just through doing it. Um, I, I loved all of that. You know, I think sometimes time travel can be too clean in sci-fi movies. Um, and this was just the complete opposite of that. It's just like a messy, horrible process, which, as you say, none of the scientists actually want to do themselves. They, they just make convicts do it, right? It's like a, yeah, the kind of futuristic version of, you know, sending people to the penal colonies in Australia. It just had that kind of yeah vibe to it. Yeah, I mean, even within like Terminator, the first film, it seems incredibly painful to travel through time, and they make a point of like, yeah, we could only send one because it's such a 
difficult. And then by the mm. second, by all the sequels, it's just like, oh yeah, they're just constantly sending Terminators back in time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this one guy annoyed us, so we're going to send a Terminator to kill him. It's just the done thing. But mm. I I can't think of a lot of other time travel stuff where they don't where it's inaccurate is part of the the thing where it's just like well we're going to shoot you vaguely back in time and hopefully it's the right year i think this yeah. probably is one of the first of the kind of puzzle box <laughs> movies up to this point i mean maybe twin peaks did that a little bit um you know david lynch sure he has literal puzzle boxes in his movies but um yeah, but you're also the- you're not really meant to solve david lynch's ones yeah, you're not supposed to solve his, but th- this one is the puzzle box that actually kind of fits together. And I don't mm. recall seeing ones along these lines much before that. Before that would have been, again, like the Fisher King or, or Jacob's Ladder, which were more like mid-level, you know, just straight up weirdo films. Good well, this, ones, it, but weird. There's a puzzle box element, but the actual mysteries are not that complex. It's more about the emotional conclusions it brings the characters to. Like, the film isn't like, oh, what a smart twist. It's like, oh, that's kind of sad for that guy. So it doesn't feel quite like a, you know, like a J.J. Abrams puzzle box where you're just like, oh, yeah, okay, you're very clever. Next. <laughs> like, it did actually, <laughs> it felt satisfying as a film, even though, yeah, there is an element of puzzle, puzzle box solving to, like, the way the script is constructed. Not to be the guy that's comparing this to that, but did anyone see La Jete, which is uh, the 1960s experimental film by Chris Marker? And I still don't know if that's Chris isn't a man or a woman, but. Uh... <laughs> no, because I only found out it existed when I read the Wikipedia article for 12 Monkeys this morning. Okay. Yeah, I only found out it existed when I was watching the credits for 12 Monkeys this night. <laughs> okay. Back, back in my old man days in the 90s, um, I, I remember, you know, I had film geek friends and somehow. It got one of my friends had it on videotape and we watched it. And um, I remember being disappointed. It's actually it's never been on a 12 Monkeys release. And uh, I have it on a Criterion disc with another experimental film, which is uh, Sans Soleil. But uh, that's an interesting one. It's, it's the bones of this movie done completely through black and white photography. Everything is a still image, uh, wow. except there's one shot of uh, movement. I don't even remember what it is. I mean, it's def- it's only like 15 minutes long, but uh, it does have the core idea of scientists sending someone into the past to find information and them just going nuts. So this has mm. a bunch of shots of them in a bed, like, you know, with gauze over their eyes, like, ah, wigging out and, and all that sort of thing. Um, it, it's 12 Monkeys is definitely like, you know, the, the full dinner. Uh, La Jete is... An interesting appetizer. It's interesting Gilliam took such an obvious experimental film and decided to just flesh it out this much. So maybe that's where he had the excuse of I can Gilliam this one up as much as I want to because the uh, you know the the it's not like the source material is pretty straight laced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The source material is plenty whack as well. But I do recommend it. I I assume it's probably on YouTube now. So see that it makes a certain sense because I can't explain or justify this in any way but this film does feel really french (laughs) (laughs) okay that probably does it (laughs) it's got got the steampunk vibe of um euro disneyland yeah (laughs) tomorrow you know you know what luke like i i 
don't know what you mean and yet I do know what you mean and right I I, and I think I agree yes yeah, it's just a vibe that it is just a vibe it's just it's just a feeling I get from it you're so right it, yeah it's spiritually a French film yeah Could it be the haircuts <laughs> maybe I, I think it's also just that because of the era and the aesthetic the films I compare it to are obviously Brazil but then fifth element it's got that same slightly yeah Luke Besson is probably the director of of these the same era who is kind of doing the same slightly inventive kind of sci-fi aesthetics Mm. with kind of these very sort of impressive and elaborate sets and things like that yeah the only other film I can think of whose future looks like this is the Super Mario Brothers movie yeah, I would say, uh, I'd say, uh, what's it called? Storm, the movie that's set on a train, not Storm Chaser, Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer? Yeah. Okay, that that's looks, a lot more recent. That kind of looks to me like a Gilliam film, but I also think it's very aware it looks like a Gilliam film, and they even make reference to Terry Gilliam in the film, if I remember correctly. This uh, is the first time anyone's talked about Snowpiercer, and it actually makes me want to see it. So <laughs> I it always looks, thought it looked really dull. <laughs> Yeah, it, it looks a lot like a Gilliam film. And I okay. think even possibly one of the characters is called Terry Gilliam or or there's a carriage which is called the Gilliam carriage or something like that where it's just a bit like, okay, I, I see oh. what you're doing. Yeah. Fun fact, also adapted from a French origin. But directed by a Korean is, filmmaker. You know what? Yeah. I think based we're, on a, based this on is the French final comic. puzzle box and we are yeah. pulling apart all of the pieces right now. All your science fiction is French, or at least the surreal yes. end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Jules Verne, right? Well, yeah, true. You're, you're an H.G. Wells guy, though. So. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was born in Woking. I don't have a choice in that matter. Mm. Right, I get that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that's the strain, again, in the Euro Disney Tomorrowland and all of that. So there is a distinct little French flair to, I guess, some... Uh, you know, if it seems like the tourist attraction next to the Moulin Rouge or something, right? <laughs> but um, yeah, just a Snowpiercer. Have we talked Snowpiercer before? I, I it came know, up but... a little bit in when we did our Soylent Green episode. Okay. And I'm sure it's on the short list that we'll cover it eventually. Uh, I'm, I'll say it again when we do it then. But the, the thing that really made me like that film is probably um, what there was an insane snowstorm about seven years ago. And there was a full-on meter of snow in, in a town. This is not Nagano, by the way. This is a Kanto. But um, there was like a meter of snow on the ground. And just everything was shut down. And like two days later, things started opening again. I remember going to a 7-Eleven and just fleecing it for everything. Because I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and having to totally trudge through the snow for that. But about two days later, the theater finally opened. They had snow piercer, So I had to like drag myself through like, what was at least I still a half meter of snow to see Snowpiercer by myself. So, you know, set and setting sometimes helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, like, I guess we'll get... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's like, you really can't enjoy a Christmas film if you try and watch it in July. Mm. Let's well, Die Hard. Can you enjoy Die Hard in July? I probably could, but I, I tend to only watch it around... That no, this is a Christmas film. Christmas. 12 Monkeys is a Christmas film. You just watched it. Yeah, it's not a very That is actually Christmas. true. <laughs> you know, get your family around the, the telly for 
Christmas and put on 12 monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually am curious how we're going to say this film holds up today, because in a world where we think more about viruses, it doesn't. And that's notable, <laughs> you know, as a movie, it seems to. But just I guess the uh, world perspective of this movie doesn't quite hold up in an interesting way. Well, the I think we all now know that Earth would never have their act together enough to set up a system where people all mass escape to space or go underground into old well, colonies. There will be a mass colony underground, but it's all going to be the kind of people I don't want to live in a mass colony underground with. Yeah, it's going to be Elon Musk and his like harem <laughs> and yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no one else. <laughs> There's a Moonraker kind of, that was, that's the Moonraker plan, I think. That's what Elon Musk is up to. His name's similar to the dude in that Bond film too. <laughs> Yeah. Did you see who they sent into space recently, though, Matt? Um, space tourists? Shatner. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, they're sending Shatner into space. Oh, future tense sending Shatner. Space. Uh, I can't remember if they have sent or are sending, but yeah. Okay, because it was a, maybe two weeks ago where they're like, oh, we're sending a bunch of straight up civilians into space. I mean, obviously they got trained because they have to run systems and things, but. My favorite was when. Um... NASA officially declared that, like, Jeff Bezos and that are not astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> they do not qualify as astronauts because they flew an airplane in real high for five minutes. <laughs> that takes uh, the first American space uh, out of contention, too, though. I guess yeah, he made probably. it 15 minutes. But uh, where were we? 12 monkeys holding up. Yeah, yeah right. we're, not, we're not moving underground. Um, we're not going to get together that much. Although, you know, currently, obviously, the like not seeing what the virus does in this movie. Like you couldn't get away with that now. <laughs> mm. Even Planet of the Apes had to show, you know, a few people like hacking blood and nosebleed and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I will say like we, the thing is this film isn't really about the virus. And I think the idea of how mental health and the prison system and all of that is just this big cycle to keep you out of society and, make it impossible for you to, to like get your life back. That's probably only more relevant and it's something that people are more mm. aware of. Mm. So um, that might be another reason why for me and yourself, Annie, this, this film was easier to watch now and I really get it now. Whereas maybe yeah. I didn't when I tried to watch it as a kid, because when I was yeah. a kid, I thought, well, you know, the guys in prison are bad guys and I want Bruce Willis to be a good yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably actually really true uh, that 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 message specifically sort of seemed to, yeah, seemed to be much more interesting, much more, more, much more compelling purely because I am like have a bit more life experience and yeah, a bit more of a worldview where you're like, oh, sorry, cat on the loose, <laughs> um, where you, um, where that that seems yeah, so much more kind of 
interesting and yeah um and relevant yeah I would say probably I'm not sure like sexual politics would hold today I don't really know if you could get away with a little cheeky kind of like "Ooh, did he rape and murder that woman you you'll have to wait and see kind of thing yeah that's pretty (laughs) (laughs) throwing her in the beauty was still pretty raw as well when you get right down to it yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, all of that stuff makes the sudden unearned random turn to romance at the end feel even yeah. more sticky. So. <laughs> well we said it with Fifth Element that Bruce was creepy with the ladies in the mid 90s. Oh is that why this film feels French? Oh <laughs> <laughs> now you've offended the French. Come on man relations aren't, aren't at their best at the moment. <laughs> it's fine. There's, Europe already hates us. There's nothing I can say that's gonna make it worse. yeah i think for the most i think this film is still worth watching today Mm, i think it's definitely you have to say it's it's got things to say that i can't think of many other films especially in the sci-fi sphere have tried to say yeah and it's aesthetically it's it's so unlike anything else from that period or that or now it's not going to feel like it's aged. It's just going to feel as weird as it did when it came out. Mm. Yeah, I think you're so right that that Gilliam aesthetic actually just is slightly timeless because, as you say, it's so alien and foreign anyway uh, that actually it doesn't kind of make you feel kind of like this is dated or this is weird. And especially for a film that's playing with time in that way, uh, it doesn't really matter to you whether he's coming back to the present day or someone that looks very much like 20 years ago, do you know? Mm. Um, it, it's because of the, the whole idea is you're playing with time, you're moving through eras and time. Uh, it only kind of makes it just more understandable. You're like, sure, he's just moving back to the 90s. I'm just thinking with filmmakers, like it's kind of these niche guys, right? You know, that the auteurs, um mm. Terry Gilliam still somehow occasionally gets a uh, film made. He's, you know, what, what Sisyphus rolling the ball up the mountain every time, right? Although he does, you sometimes gets his film made in the end. But I'm thinking, you know, like uh, David Lynch doesn't really bother making new films anymore. Uh, John Waters certainly doesn't. A lot of these guys that did make films just in weird spaces can't seem to get it done so much anymore. I guess, I guess you got to go to TV for that now. <laughs> I mean, I think everyone is struggling to get films made at the moment. So whether you're an auteur or not, but yeah, I think there is, the problem is that there's no longer room for the middle budget movie. There's completely low budget indie or there's $150 million extravaganzas, but no one is putting money in the middle anymore. Yeah. 12 monkeys is is, very much in the middle, (laughs) right? That's where these guys used to shine, but you know, you're not going to give Terry Gilliam the next Marvel movie. And also he should. Oh, yeah, yeah, 100% <laughs> he should, but they're not going to. I'm doing Ant-Man? How awesome would that be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he wouldn't want to do it. He did feel like he was selling out anyway, so probably. Because yeah. he's a bit of a iconoclast anyway. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. It's like, I feel like we never... You just talk around the virus in this movie. That, I guess that's the thing. It's a. Uh, mm. It seems like a big hit, but then you watch it. It's like, well, that yeah, it's the MacGuffin of this movie. It's not the central core again. So, uh, mm-hmm. 
because we just we just recorded, although it'll air next week with the, with the Donna dead, and you mentioned, oh, maybe this was actually the the fits more the modern vibe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Dawn you- of the Dead felt basically like it was predicting the exact events of the year twenty twenty, whereas <laughs> Twelve Monkeys is really it's actually about something else. And like, yeah, you put it correctly, the virus is just a MacGuffin. Yeah, and the it's never really about a, you know, they say the the virus is airborne. Um, and Bruce Willis gives some kind of, you know, oh, it's so nice breathing this clean air. But uh, it's really, really kind of a story where the earth itself is sick. The world is sick and everything is decaying and people are being driven mad. And, um, you know, there's nothing, you know, you, when Bruce Willis returns to the 90s, you are quite clearly given a sense that this is a, a dying world. Um, and actually that probably is more environmental, I guess, than viral. It sort of does feel a bit like, well, yeah, this world does, as we told you at the very beginning, end with a virus, but it, it kind of looks like it's on its way out anyway, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the very terrain itself seems to be sick. Although... Well, that- it does seem like a lot of people in the past year and a half have been getting kookier. So even with this situation where we, I mean, I don't think any of us are quite willing to say the earth is dying at the moment, but people are definitely, you know, getting their heads racked around, uh, you know, a lot. Well, of- at the start of the virus, there were loads of people sharing on the internet, like, Oh, look at this field full of whatever's nature's healing. Cause the humans aren't there. Um, and I feel like that was a big theme in the nineties of like, eco-villains who wanted to get rid of us so that the animals could have the planet back sort of thing yeah I mean that was one thing I kind of liked about the movie that it, it toys with that expectation which as you say is a big thing in the 90s and even further than that it's like this really big thing in like uh, the security services and the FBI and MI5 are all really like you know concerned that eco-terrorists are going to be the next big thing and loads of papers get like sort of in terrorism studies get made about eco-terrorism and it all turns to kind of just not it just kind of doesn't happen um which is kind of yeah which then it it sort of then makes the kind of security services measures that they took among uh, lots of environmental groups such as kind of like you know you, you know sort of undercover agents and phone tapping and stuff like that it makes it all look very cruel um and kind of unnecessary but the truth is they were just working to the intelligence that all of these security services had which was that eco-terrorism was going to be huge um and so i kind of do like that it sort of plays this movie plays with that expectation you're just like yeah this is going to be this and this hippie environmental kooky animal loving group and then it's not it's like the scientist in a suit you know um so i did kind of i kind of liked that it, it that sort of twist because it's it seemed probably quite I imagine now it just feels like a twist but I think actually it probably did have an element of political commentary at the time mm. and I'm sure the oil lobbies didn't mind everyone hating the eco groups no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, real, real eco-terrorism is uh, crashing your tanker on a bunch of rocks <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well I think the reason that maybe the eco-terrorists never went as extreme as people were thinking they were going to is because their whole thing is built on compassion. It's not built on like hatred of anyone. It's just like, oh, we like animals. So 
that, that, that doesn't necessarily lend itself to I'm going to kill a bunch of people. But yeah, yeah, Thanos was right. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll open the floor to any final thoughts on this one before we, we close up shop for the day. And anything we didn't get in? No, I think I've, I've got all my final thoughts out in the last five minutes. <laughs> That's what those minutes are for. <laughs> what? No, no, man. What, what? I was going to say, was there literally only one spoken female role, but there was at least three. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this one passes the uh, virtual test. No, I don't think any of them meet at any point. <laughs> if, they, if they do, all they talk about is Bruce Willis. So. Yeah. <laughs> By, by the name Bruce Willis, yes. <laughs> um, so I guess wrapping up, uh, Annie, can you tell our listeners about uh, your podcast or, or what you're up to? Yes, absolutely. So you can hear me talk about conspiracy theories and the far right on QAnon, QAnon Anonymous. I'm a UK correspondent. And you can hear me talk more generally about the history of disease uh, and smallpox and the smallpox vaccine and the birth of the anti-vax movement, the first ever one, um, and Vaccine the Human Story, which uh, is on all podcast apps and also on YouTube with some lovely visuals. So yeah, check us out. It was quite a struggle getting it on the YouTube, right, with the name Vaccine? It was such a struggle. I sort of knew it would be difficult, but I didn't know how difficult. Yeah, for, for a while I had to send people a direct link if they wanted to watch it. Uh, because understandably, uh, you say I'm making a documentary about vaccines and YouTube goes, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to need to check you out. Um, but they did check us out and we got the YouTube seal of approval. Um, and now you can just search for us and we will be there, which is very exciting for us. Excellent. I was going to ask if you had to make like the I an exclamation point or something. <laughs> <laughs> really pro-vax, guys? <laughs> um, yeah, I should have just put that in brackets. Should have been called vaccine the human story, brackets, not anti-vax. <laughs> well, you, no, you have to do what you did last time, put pro. If you put not anti, you know, that's like don't shut the door. What I hear is shut the door. Right? Yeah, so. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a touch of psychology. Hey, am I co coherent enough not to have to do the uh, blurb today? Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter at MLSFS Pod. You're also on Facebook, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Anywhere where you can get podcasts, just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. You're already listening, so I presume you've done that, but give it five stars or whatever. Tell your friends. Uh, if you want to help keep it online, you can support this podcast and find the other podcasts me and Matt make by going to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius which Matt always says is a Harry Potter reference. It's not. It's based it, on Peep it Show. It sounds really Harry Potter. It's yeah. meant to be like Peep Show, where Johnson's company was called Consultio Consultius. <laughs> and, and just as a teaser, in next week's episode, you'll get to hear my completely stoned out um, attempt at doing that blurb. Yeah, Matt cannot do the like the socials bit at the best of times. So when he was uh... like out of his mind yesterday, I made him do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm actually about to go get out of my mind again after this podcast because uh, I have well, to do that three times a day for three more days. <laughs> one of Matt's lines was, I think we're on Facebook, maybe. So <laughs> Nice. Well, Facebook That's has been right. out for six hours. Leave them with the air of mystery. People yeah. love that. It's like, maybe you can find us. Maybe <laughs> you can't. 
Yeah, we might be on like, uh, I was about to say some other internet, but that makes people think of the dark web. <laughs> <laughs> and you can buy drugs from us at. <laughs> uh, yeah, to, to my knowledge, we're not on the dark web. Oh, yeah. My old blog, which, you know, I guess not many people write blogs anymore, but I, I, I just, you know, see it get inundated with like bizarre ads like that. So sometimes I think I should go clean it up. But now I'm like, man, it's, I don't I don't care anymore. <laughs> Is that bad? Should I care? Should I clean up my 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 old no, old maps? It's very it's very Should useful it? to digital historians. Yeah, yeah. That, the organic the organic like evolve evolution of those blogs. It's just sad because five years ago I got actual comments, and now it's just it's all ads for insane things. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know, Luke. I I feel like you still end up getting the outro so if you could take us to the future uh no i really can't think of one but that's okay listeners because don't worry this is all in your head Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.